if any of you live in Delhi or going to Delhi, go to Humayun's tomb. And before you enter, there's a chabutra or platform on the left. Apparently, that's an execution platform. Everybody used to come to watch an execution like a picnic. And the Mughal method of execution was your head would be placed on a platform and an elephant would climb on it and crush your head. And see, this was meant to deter crime. But it used to be a picnic. You used to pack biryani and kebabs and go watch the execution of the day. If you go to the north near the Chinese border, for example, they would come up to you. They they wanted pictures with you. Uh, they'd never seen a fat person like me before. So they wanted pictures of me ride, uh, riding on their backs. <laughs> I, I don't know it. Um, I guess, you know, there's this racist trend in China where on your birthday, there are companies that will get African kids to hold up Chinese signs saying, happy birthday to Ranveer Allahabadiyah. Really? Yeah. And it's, it's apparently a very exploitative industry. I guess I was, for that... For those two, three days, I was their equivalent <gasps> of the... Uh, African kids saying happy birthday. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Episode number two with Abhijit Ayer Mitra. I highly recommend you check out episode one if you haven't checked it out already. Not that you need to check it out in order to enjoy this one because this one's more focused on his Asian travels. This is a man who spent time in North Korea. He spent time in China. He's observed the world. He's observed geopolitics for the longest time he's also one of the most educated people i've ever had on the show he's also one of the funniest conversationalists i've had on the show always a pleasure speaking to this man this episode is another dark tourism special i'm sure you're going to enjoy it aim returns for episode two with ranveer on trs enjoy yourselves Right, AIM. Give us an epic storytelling-based podcast about the Gulf, Afghanistan, and the Arab world in general. But you've traveled a lot. You said that you always take two vacations every year. One's a chill beach-style vacation, mm-hmm. and the other one's a little f***ed up vacation. Yeah. So this is about all the f***ed up vacations. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> this is the f***ed up vacation podcast. Yeah, okay. North Korea! Yeah. <laughs> Why? How? When? What? So, you know, I, I didn't even realize you could go to North Korea. And I had this friend, uh, Kim Wall, a lovely girl. And she, uh, you know, she was an intern at the EU embassy in Delhi. That's Mm. how we became friends when I moved back to Delhi. uh, Eight, nine years back, more maybe. Um, And, uh, you know, she, uh, she was killed. She was uh, apparently raped and killed. That was that very famous killing of that... uh, a Danish submarine uh, inventor. Uh, he took her on his submarine between Malmo and Copenhagen. And um, he killed her, chopped her body into pieces and things like that. Um, In the submarine? Yeah. Yeah. When was this? Uh, this was about four or five years back. Really? Yeah, it became a big thing. So what happened was on her Facebook, I first saw that she was in North Korea. I was like, damn, this is all the shit Kim and I used to talk about. And how the hell did she find a way to get there? And she went there without me. Right. And uh, then she told me how to go there. And uh, went there. And it was, uh, I think that started off my love of traveling to all these weird places. 
Had you been to South Korea before? Yeah, I'd been to South Korea first in uh, eighty-three or eighty-four. Uh, yeah. Why? Uh, because my dad got, who was in government at the time, got invited to an international conference on toilets. Um, I don't know how that comes under the uh, um, uh, Comptroller and Auditor General's uh, mm. uh, thing. I suspect he was lying because he was <laughs> in the Defence Ministry at the time and he didn't want uh. to tell me it was about something else. But I remember it as an international conference on toilets. <laughs> and um, he would, of course, go, but there was a very nice lady who took me around and showed me Seoul and Pusan and all these places. Is it true that I think South Korea got independence in around 1947? Yeah, uh, on the same day as us, fifteenth August. Really, exact same day. Yeah, but that country has surged ahead in terms of GDP growth rate, etc., exactly. etc. Exactly, they've surged ahead, and it's you know what's really strange is that till again nineteen seventy nine, the same year the Shah fell in Iran, uh, South Korea was the basket case, and North Korea was the. Shining star. North Korea had the second highest per capita income in Asia yeah. after Japan. If you meet South Koreans today, they'll tell you how their parents grew up in villages. Yeah, and now suddenly they're living in like cities. yes, these are like thirty-five, forty-year-olds. Exactly right. Mm. And um, it uh, it was a nasty dictatorship. I'm, of course, that time, look, eighty-three, eighty-four. I wasn't very politically aware. Right for me, it was all about the lights and the technology, the neon. In those days, in India, we didn't have neon lights, you know. So it was like, oh my God, neon lights! So many neon lights. This is so cool, and a lot of technology happening out there. But you know, that was the cusp when uh, you know South Korea started democratizing. Uh, it's also when Taiwan started democratizing, and you know that is the power of capitalism and technology. That that is when the information age begins. And you know, for manufacturing, because it's such a socially disruptive process, you need a very strong, brutal state to. Forcibly industrialize you, but then when the information age starts, you need the state to become weaker and take a back seat and allow individuals and private businesses to start steering the economy. And of course, at that time, I didn't realize it. This is all, you know, post uh, whatever reflection. And I don't remember Korean food, but then since then, I've been back to Korea several times, and mostly it's been for the food. Uh, I love Korean food. Um, I don't like the garlic bread uh, <laughs> because they. I don't know what it is with raw garlic, man. Like, what is it with raw <laughs> garlic? I mean, I mean, I love garlic cooked, but not raw garlic. And they eat way too much raw garlic out there. Mm. You know, it's like you can't even tell them. Like, it's an aphrodisiac. <sighs> Trust me, it's <laughs> not even remotely aphrodisiac. <laughs> it's the biggest bloody turn off that you can get, right? Um, but it's um, it's it's a very interesting society. Um, Till you start going to North Korea, and then you realize they're an even more interesting society in a totally different way. But it has similarities, Korean culture and all that. None, not at all. I mean, I being a foreigner, um, maybe I was predisposed to seeing the dissimilarities, right? Mm. Uh, to seeing the differences. Uh, but other than they, they look similar. and on ceremonial occasions they will uh wear the same uh, the women will wear the same dress um you don't really uh, there's nothing remotely similar about how the people react about how the people behave their pop culture even their food has become so 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 different with that um, 70 years of partition 
Really? Yeah. I'm assuming like South Korea had a lot of cheese. Like, you know, it had a lot of American influence. A huge American cheese, spam. Mm. You know, these these are big things in South Korea. Uh, in the north, you're lucky if you come across uh, cheese, spam, anything like that. In fact, you know, even uh, uh, apple juice. What I mean, you know, commercial apple juice isn't really apple juice. It's just carbonated water with mm. uh, apple flavor in it. Mm. Uh, in North Korean hotels, they will not put apple juice. They will put carbonated water with apple flavor. Mm. Uh, or uh, their equivalent of Fanta is carbonated water with orange flavor. Uh, so, you know, it's very, uh, it's a brutally honest society in that way. Like, uh, is it a society? Because they, it is. Uh, did you see that Joe Rogan podcast about that lady who escaped from yeah. North Korea? She says some extremely morbid stuff. Like how yeah. when she was growing up, she saw her fellow students in schools mm -hmm. eating rats, uh, <laughs> eating, you know, like all sorts of like hardcore shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, rapes being very normalized, yeah. uh, sexualization of women being very normalized. Mm. She painted an extremely morbid picture. Now she's gone on a bunch of American podcasts and the whole world knows about North Korea through her. Yeah. You saw the same stuff? Um, quite the reverse, actually. Uh, it's, uh, it's not as closed as I thought it was. Uh, you could, being an Indian, uh, for white people, it is closed. Uh, when you're an Indian in North Korea, especially if you're like me and you know how to play up your Indianness and dress in kurta pajama, uh, you get to interact with people without uh, chaperoning uh, and you see a very different side. Now, I'm not saying that uh, during the height of the famines out there, people weren't eating rats and things like that. But, you know, you have to be very... My issue, my great issue with the Western media complex is they dehumanize and demonize regimes that they don't like uh, in a way which I found is very different from reality. Like, you know, the last time when we were talking about uh, um, the Taliban, uh, you know, the Taliban I met were very, very different from the Taliban I'd read about. And that's why I went to Afghanistan, to see it for myself. Same in Iran, a totally different society from what you read. Same in Syria, same in Jordan, uh, same in... Uh, Israel, not so much because Israel does a lot of good projection of itself. Uh, Korea was like that. So, you know, if you go south, closer to the South Korean border, people are much more scared. But you go to the north near the Chinese border, for example, they happily come up like in the south. Uh, you know, when I went to buy something, this lady was so scared, she put her shutter down and hid under the thing because she didn't want to be seen talking to a foreigner. Really? Yeah. But in the north, near Mount Pictou, where Dear Leader was apparently born through immaculate conception under and brought down to earth by a unicorn under a rainbow uh, <laughs> thing, uh, they would come up to you. They, they wanted pictures with you. Uh, they'd never seen a fat person like me before. So they wanted pictures of me ride, uh, riding on their backs. <laughs> I, I don't know it. Um, I guess you know there's this racist trend in China where on your birthday there are companies that will get African kids to hold up Chinese signs saying "Happy Birthday to Ranveer Allahabadia." Really? Yeah. And it's it's apparently a very exploitative industry. I guess I was for that for those two three days I was their equivalent <gasps> of the uh, African kids saying "Happy Birthday." Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. And. Um, they would talk to you. I could have conversations with them. 
The chaperone wasn't so concerned about me because this was an organized group tour. The chaperone would go ahead with all the white people and different rules applied to the brown people, which was to say there was only one, I mean, you know, for some reason, Indians don't want all these experiences. They want what can be, sh- what is Instagrammable. Uh, we went to see Switzerland. We went to Milan, to a fashion show in Milan, to the Prada show in Milan. We went to the Coliseum in Rome. But nobody wants to go to North Korea or Iran and places like that, right? So rare to get a brown person, especially dressed weird like me or mm. in their eyes weird like me. And uh, huge amount of... Uh, just going out and talking to people without a chaperone with severe language limitations. You will find people who can kind of speak English, but except in few places where I did see signs of malnourishment, uh, people were pretty damn well nourished. Really? Yeah. But you know, for me, North Korea was much more a reflection in India. It brought home a lot of horrible truths about India than it did about any other society. Um, like, for example, so, you know, we went to pay our respects at the uh, mausoleum of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, the first two leaders, a father and son. And they're, pres- they're embalmed and preserved. And, you know, you have to do, like, in a temple, you do the uh, uh, circumam- parikrama, uh, circumambulation. Uh, you have to do that to them. And uh, at the feet, you first bow three times. Then on the uh, right, you bow three times. At the head, you bow three times. And then on the... Uh, Left-hand side, you bow three times. And, you know, when we were coming back, uh, there's a long escalator. Um, I thought there was a group of midgets coming. Um, I literally thought it was, either, I, well, school children. Um, I thought it was school children, little primary school kids. It wasn't primary school kids. These were fully grown adults who were midgets. Uh, they were a foot, foot and a half shorter than us, all built like bodybuilders. And it turned out this was a delegation from Hamyong province. Now, Hamyong province was uh, the famines in North Korea. You know, some of them were natural. Some of them were targeted punishment. Because they rebelled against the Uh, leadership. Not rebelled as much as chose a capitalist path. They chose to sell their produce uh, uh, on open markets. Uh, I'll come to that part. So what happens is, uh, I'm like who are these people? Like, is this, I mean, I've never seen, I've seen midgets in society, but how do you have a whole collective of midgets? Is this like the North Korean Association of Midgets or whatever? No, this is a delegation from Hamyong province who, because their childhood was during the famine, there was severe stunting. And they are now extremely well-built because after the period of collective punishment was over, the North Korean government introduced a program of a tetra pack each of soy milk. And so they got their protein supplements and whatever. And, you know, I kind of got uh, talking to uh, my guide. I mean, she, you know, she had her guard lower down with me than with, uh, uh, I guess, the white people, uh, brown privilege. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and you know, the thing is, and I also knew a bit about the famine. And, it so happens that, you know, in Hamyong, there was this period when Kim Jong-il, number two, um, he said, you know, we're going to liberalize. Uh, you don't have to sell your products to the state. You can, if you grow uh, and there is excess, you can sell it by yourself. And when they came out on the streets, Hamyong was the most uh, agriculturally rich province. 
So they all set up carts and started selling vegetables on the uh, vegetables or chicken or pork or whatever on the street. And it turned out to be a ploy because dear leader wanted to see if you actually had imbibed the teachings or if you're only pretending to imbibe the teachings. You know, this was like Mao Zedong's Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom. He said, we shouldn't control thought. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Let a thousand minds speak. And everybody who spoke was then executed. So this was one of those things where they decided Hamyong had been an ideologically disloyal province. And it was targeted for genocide. It was... Uh, the famine was artificial. It was partly natural, but most of it was artificial where food was not allowed to go in to kill off a whole generation so that, you know, this treasonous thought would not uh, continue. And um, these kids had grown up at that time. So, you know, what happens with malnourishment and famine is severe stunting, but there are also psychological uh, so your cognitive abilities go down very severely, but not just limited to you for the next two, three generations. Really? Yeah. It plays with your sperm and it, eggs. Uh, it, uh, yeah. And it plays with your brain as well. You become more violent. Uh, you, uh, you're not, you don't have the same cognitive abilities that um, uh, normal people would. And, you know, I never thought about it. But when I came back, the first thing I saw when I was coming out of the airport was a construction site. And you see all these landless laborers who are a good foot, foot and a half less than you. And you know, that's when you realize, I mean, you don't realize these things till you see it somewhere else contextualized for you, that we have a severe malnourishment problem in India. 45% of this population is, of in India's population is malnourished. 33% is stunted, apparently. And malnourishment leads to reverse evolution. Exactly. Uh, and you know, you begin to see that. So it was a very... Um, I I couldn't no disturbing. I mean, I couldn't sleep properly for about two three months after that. After just seeing that group of people and knowing coming back to Delhi and seeing labor, I don't know where those laborers were from at the construction site here. And you know, now every time I see somebody who's unusually shorter than me, they're usually from an extremely underprivileged section of society. You know exactly what's happening. Apparently, the problem is not so severe. So I know you had Sanjeev Sanyal, who's a good friend, uh, um, sometime back on the podcast. And he's written a fantastic paper showing you how the numbers might not be accurate. But, you know, for me, the mental impact of seeing that, that as a free and open society, we still have these problems. Um, I've, it just does something. I'm, I'm not uh, very emotional. I'm, I'm, it doesn't emotionally affect me, but psychologically it disturbs me. What else was disturbing about North Korea? Nothing else, really. It was really just that, you know, the brutality that can sometimes manifest, but it is not a uniform brutality. I'm sure the stories about the prison camps where, they, uh, where they're horribly sadistic to you are true. But you remember when we spoke the last time, I told you how people always manage to find happiness where there is none. Mm. And you know, for me, the first thing is that North Korea reminded me of my childhood. You know, in 83, when I, 83 or 84, just before the uh, Seoul Olympics, when I went to Seoul Asia, when I went to Seoul, uh, Delhi was a lot like Pyongyang. You know, uh, Latians Delhi, especially South Delhi, where uh, I grew up in a place called Bharti Nagar. Grew up, I mean, spent a few, a year or so in Bharti Nagar. Uh, there would be no cars on the street. 
That was when Maruti had first come out. The first Maruti had come out. And if you saw Maruti, it was amazing. At most in an hour, you'd see about 10 cars. And you know, Bharti Nagar is opposite Khan Market, which is today the high disposable income market, where you'll see a heck of a lot of Mercedes and BMWs and Audis and things like that. But um, at that time, it was like, if you saw 10 cars, it was a big thing, mm. right? Uh, and... Seeing no cars in North Korea, seeing import substitution. Like we had Campacola, we had Gold Spot. We did not have Fanta or, and Campacola was fantastic. Uh, Gold Spot was fantastic. I still miss Gold Spot. Um, and you know, Limca has been completely ruined because Limca used to taste very good. I don't know why it tastes so, maybe I've, my taste buds have changed. <laughs> but we used to have import substitution. Everything from abroad was something to be cherished. You know, uh, you get this uh, craft cheese, K-R-A-F, Cheese yeah. uh, tea in a tin. In those days, that used to be like as if somebody has given you a box of diamonds. Uh-huh. <gasps> we got a box of cheese in a tin. I mean, a tin was a novelty. Mm. You know, opening the tin, we were like, wow, this metal is so thin. You can actually open a tin like this. And, you know, opening the tin was my dad had to wait for me to come back from school. And I would open the tin because it was such a miraculous wonder for me. Mm. And, you know, when I first went to America, I was like, oh my God, these people have cans. They have so many Mm -hmm. cans, Coke cans. I mean, cans are such a luxury and you're throwing it away. Oh my God. Like, you Mm. know, I used to preserve craft cheese tins. (laughs) Uh, I used to pretend it was a spaceship or whatever and play with it. Mm. Right. Um, And I was relatively privileged. And in those days, you could only take $500 while going abroad. Very strictly monitored. So, you know, a lot of North Korea reminded me of Delhi in the 1980s. You know, when I was in school in Delhi, every play that we did was about Gandhi, Nehru or the Gandhi family. Every play that we went to was about Gandhi, Nehru or Indira Gandhi as a baby or something like that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. This is uh, very institutionalized. It is. And you don't begin to realize the amount of brainwashing you've had till you see it. See you are so inured to it. Now, what I told you about Afghanistan, about people not realizing the situation they're in, won't make sense unless you see it somewhere else. I had Vikram Sampat on the show a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. He was talking about how in your textbooks in the 70s and 80s, you all were taught about Russian stories like Rasputin. Yeah. And you all had Russian references. Yeah. I don't remember having any Russian references. So, you know, there was this magazine. The first magazine I got published in when I was about seven, eight years old was this thing called Junior Quest. Mm. And it was a kids magazine that was modeled on Soviet propaganda kids magazines. And the cartoons in that were all from uh, Russian cartoons. They were very high quality, but they were all Russian cartoons translated into English. Uh, not Russian, Soviet cartoons translated into English. We mm. should, uh, because, you know, Soviet cartoons always had a social message. Right. They weren't just for the sake of fun. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it was... Um, you look at the amount of sort of Russian, uh, sorry, Soviet influence that used to go into us or the deification of a family, uh, almost a sort of demigod level of glorification of the family that used to happen. It all, you know, North Korea brought all those and you've forgotten all these things. North Korea brought that back in a very, very hard way. In a good way also, but. Can't relate, but I'm enjoying relating. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was yeah. born after the Cold War. Yeah, I'm showing my age. Yeah, you're basically saying, 
you you're an old man old fart but that's fine i know yeah. i mean it's cool like i feel 80s indians have lived a very different life man yeah i mean think of it this way in technology terms you know you had to wait 2 3 months to get a phone okay and a phone used to be this big box and it used to actually have a physical lock <laughs> which because phone calls were super expensive mm. and if you didn't want your kids to be talking on the phone because it was so expensive you actually locked the phone and you had to be very quick with your std calls which people have forgotten what an std call is it's not sexually transmitted disease it's a, a state trunk dialysis hey sorry yeah, nah. hey, it's um, it was to call from delhi to madras was an std call and it used to be super expensive like you know one minute would be like 50 60 rupees which was a huge deal in those days mm. right uh 50 60 rupees you could finish your entire grocery shopping for 50 60 rupees um and uh isd you had to place trunk calls you had to call up and say i want this number called and then they'll call you back mm. when and you know you actually had this phone alarm system you could call up the central exchange and set an alarm for 6:30 in the morning and you would get a call at 6:30 in the morning uh things like that we've gone from there to mobile phones today and when i was growing up the only person that had the level of word processing and communication power at that time would have been the president of the united states of america right uh, and it would have involved thousands of people it would have probably filled up what our mobile phone can do today and i've seen this in my own lifetime uh when i was a kid would fill up two buildings it would fill up two antillas worth of equipment mm okay people have forgotten about computers i remember the first computer i saw each alphabet had to be punched and then fed in it wasn't typed there was no type interface <laughs> and when the era of chat gpt no yeah man oh. horrible i hate chat gpt mm-hmm. the worst program i've ever used well but it will change <laughs> no it won't because it it because it's artificial learning if it's mostly morons contributing to it it turns into a moron so it's not going to get better it's going to get worse but won't it be getting data from the whole world yeah and it's learned to lie already it's been making up stuff about people a lot of my friends have uh conned it uh, saying uh, find mr mvs tb subramaniam who was my grandfather it'll say i found nobody uh they made up the name by the way i say what it's a uh, this person's really famous and then it replies saying oh you meant that guy and then it literally concocts a whole biography of this thing mm. so it can actually be shamed into lying okay which is learned behavior okay mm. okay um i'm still curious to see where these guys take it or sam or when he don like yeah. even to be able to build something of this level from an engineering perspective is very crazy it's very crazy i think you see it mu- way ahead in defense because ai in defense is because it's carefully controlled uh all the dumb people can't contribute to it right. it's learned experiences that are vetted carefully vetted that are then fed into the intelligence bank okay what is ai in defense do so very simply it's things that make your life easier now do you drive a manual or an automatic 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 right now did you learn on a manual yes now when you re- learned on the manual you'll remember how irritating it was to constantly press the clutch 
and constantly keep even when you slow down and in india mm. you know traffic you're never going to drive at over 40 50 in a city 40 50 is like light speed in a mm. city, uh, in an indian city you keep have to change even when you're inching forward in traffic you'd have to keep changing from neutral to first to whatever uh, this thing and you'd end up with spondylitis both in your foot and in your mm. hand one way or another right mm. uh, people don't realize how much of brain power that actually uses up mm. it's a it's a reflex action for you but it actually takes up a huge yeah. amount of brain power and what they found is when the vest started shifting to automatic it reduced accidents by almost 80% mm. so insurance premiums for automatics is much lower than it is for manuals right right uh so a simple thing like that led to such a huge improvement in safety and uh savings societal savings uh ai is like that it does a lot of the small things for you so you can focus on the main job situational awareness improves so now before assume i'm a fighter pilot and ranveer alabadi has a pakistani nuclear reactor that i need to bomb now mm. i'm coming to bomb you i don't know there are people telling me that there is a, a anti aircraft missile site here there are anti aircraft guns out here there are pakistani planes coming uh, to intercept me i don't even know if i've been detected on the radar but my radar warner tells me that i have been detected and i'm processing all of this mentally while still trying to focus on trying to bomb you what has now happened first because of information technology is all of this is first presented to me on an lcd screen Mm. I don't have to keep a mental image of the battle I have it visually represented to me on a screen what AI does is it's learned how to get you the best possible best path. possible path uh your attack vector so that you can drop the bomb and come back before those pakistani planes arrive at you uh it's made life so easy the only thing i need to be looking at is ranveer alabadia's face and exactly where to drop that bomb what do you think is a technology that say the top militaries in the world which i'm assuming are american mm. and chinese mm. are using but are not talking about openly um i don't think there's much in terms of uh kinetic technology that they're not talking about it's more surveillance technology okay. how they are uh you know uh google for example uh the amount of information big data that it's sucking up from you i mean we store even if you use an apple phone you're syncing it with your gmail mm. uh what is gmail storing about you who's it sharing your passwords with uh is it reading your mail somehow and creating some image about you in its uh, own this thing uh the ways that they're able to spy on you and build up a very very accurate image of you uh is something that they're not talking about so the american government would be actively working with google of course. facebook of course. all these people of course which is why our government has decided to come up with its own uh google kind of search engine its own operating system like android uh, we've already made payments independent of the west so you know that's a huge thing so this upi is a massive thing i think people don't realize how uh, i mean people realize how convenient it is but they don't realize how liberating it is as mm. well uh because, because i any day if i had to be spied on like you will always be spied on i'd much rather the indian government spied on me than the american government spied on me 
I think the future of humanity is entirely going to be about being spied on. Yeah. It already is. The present of humanity is that. We exactly. just don't talk about it as openly. Right? Yeah. And even if it's not people who are spying on us, it's algorithms who will eventually give their own access to the people that own the algorithm. Exactly. And the second thing that they're not talking about is uh, electronic warfare. So things like jamming. You know, the way they're able to pick up on signals and the very exotic sort of counter-frequency jamming and misinformation that they're able to feed you with, false images. They can actually create the image of an aircraft attacking you when there's no aircraft attacking. Wow. As in, in your on, systems, your radar, on your radar. On your systems, on right. your computers and everything. Okay. So those are things that are very black. They're not discussed very openly, but they exist. And like, we like, know they exist. We just don't know the extent and depth of it. Like Area 51. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm. Uh, you have that image of an alien out there, I guess. Um, <laughs> that statuette. But um, I don't believe aliens have visited Earth. Okay. Um, I fundamentally believe that alien contact will be hostile. Why? And, uh, because it is usually a warlike race. Uh, war leads to innovation. Um, you know, one book that I recommend to everybody is Ian Morris's War, What Is It Good For? But you, you're saying that a civilization progresses through innovation, which happens usually during war. So it's likely that that alien civilization would have been at war for a long time before they advance. And would be very aggressive. We like to think of ourselves as very benign. America has caused so much death around the world, uh, be it in Libya, destroying the, a stable Libyan government and turning it into a civil war zone, destroying a relatively stable Syria, all in the name of human rights and turning it into a civil war zone, destroying Iraq and turning it into a civil war zone. But Americans fundamentally see themselves as good people trying to do good, which I believe they are trying to do good. Mm. These people, when they come, will possibly be trying to do good. Possibly, may not be. They might be like the Klingons who want to fight unto the death and destroy you kind of thing. But uh, I don't think it'll end well for us. Okay, okay. Uh, man, I have no opinion here. Because I've heard too many astrophysicists, like Michio Kaku was on the Joe Rogan mm. experience recently. Mm. He gave a very cool image about futuristic civilizations. He's like aliens, even if they're like 500 years ahead of us, mm. they've already discovered quantum computing. They've already mm. gone beyond that level of man-machine interface, all that. Look, they'll discover us for sure before we discover them. And you know, this isn't uh, science fiction. Just pure statistics yeah. should tell you that there should be lots of life in the universe. And pure statistics should tell you that a lot of life should be way ahead in terms of evolution and technology than you are. Mm. We will be discovered. Uh, I would rather be in a state to discover them than be discovered. Because the discovered historically do not fare well. The discoverer mm. usually fares better. Yeah, fair. Like our only gauge for outcomes is human history. Yeah. Spoke about American history, spoke about Syria. We've also spent time in Syria. Yeah. We're going to switch into talking about Syria. Okay. Uh, why did you choose to go there, dude? Like, you know, my, I have two impressions of Syria. One are the ISIS videos that used to be viral on WhatsApp mm. about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. where they'd show beheadings and all that. Yeah. And the second is meeting Syrians all over the world who are working in hospitality usually for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe that's why you end up meeting them. Yeah. Very good looking people again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they're almost embarrassed to say they're from Syria. 
these days uh, when I used to meet a lot of them uh, in Australia or America or whatever or in Syria proper, uh, they're not even remotely embarrassed. They they weren't. I don't uh, I don't recollect having experience since the civil war started because all my visits to Syria were pre and uh, that was. Um, the uh, the last one was about 2006 when the israelis started bombing lebanon south lebanon and we all had to get evacuated like you were part of the evacuation well i got evacuated to cyprus really yeah why were you in lebanon though? I, I was in syria oh okay but uh, the university said oh you know you can't be there uh, you have to get evacuated because our insurance doesn't cover you what were you still what? studying i was doing my international relations at that in time. syria no in uh, um uh, in Australia, but I was doing a semester at the University of Damascus learning Arabic. I never learned any Arabic. Yeah, I, got to, I got to know lots of Syrian men in the biblical sense of that word, but uh, <laughs> uh, I did not, I learned to swear profusely in Arabic because, you know, I think learning a language, you first need to learn all the Gali's. swear words. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What was Syria like before? Amazing. I think it's my favorite country in the Middle East. So, you know, like we discussed the last time, I find Iranian food very dry and uh, the excitement goes off after about two to three days. Syrian food is, I think it eclipses every other Middle Eastern cuisine. Uh, Turkish cuisine is on a big high these days. I think Syrian food is much more sophisticated than Turkish food. It's more sophisticated than Lebanese or Israeli food or Jordanian food or Iraqi food even. Uh, very cultured people. There is so much history concentrated in that area. And, you know, people don't realize historically, there were three cities in which today you think of Syria and Iraq as two separate countries, right? But historically, there were three cities in which the power of the Middle East revolved around. Damascus, Aleppo, and Baghdad. And Baghdad, of course, historically, all these cities are thousands of years old. We think of Baghdad as an Arab Muslim city, but people tend to forget that this Tisfun, which was the Sassanid Persian capital, had been the Persian of the capital, uh, the capital of the Persian Empire for a few hundred years, way before uh, Islam was even born. Right, and two of these cities are in Syria. So imagine how much culture is accumulated there in a very small, in a relatively compact tract of land, where so much history that we know has happened. Uh, so many people that you talk about are, you know, you're walking where uh, Mongol armies came, where Turkish armies came, where uh, Jesus probably walked, uh, you know, things like that, which is very humbling. There is so much culture out there. There is so much architecture out there. Um, and, and the people are just lovely to talk to. Could you also give some small geopolitical context on what happened? Why did the shit go down? Yeah. So, look, uh, Syria is one of those places which um, has minority rule. So you have, it's largely a Sunni majority, but you have this uh, a very powerful Christian minority and a very powerful Alawite minority. And the Alawites are uh, a Shia sect of Islam. And it's basically the... Alawites and the Christians got together to screw over the Sunnis, kind of. And that's kind of connected largely to Lebanon. Lebanon is an artificial creation, right? The French, when they took over Syria, it, it used to be an Ottoman province. And at the end of the First World War, when Germany, Austria, and Turkey were defeated, the Ottoman Empire was defeated, 
Syria became a French province. And there was a large concentration of Christians in coastal Syria. And the French wanted to create an artificial Christian majority, which is how they created Lebanon. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of this artificial carving up of states going on out there. But anyway, what was left was a Christian and Alawite majority who anyway controlled the businesses and things like that. Very rich, very enterprising and things. Generally, if you're a minority, you tend to, not all minorities, but several minorities tend to do much better. And they've been in control for the last 30, 40 years at least, starting with uh, even before Bashar al-Assad, who's current president, Assad's daddy. And uh, brutal, I mean, they're not um, nice, I guess. I mean, you know, that's not a region where you turn the other cheek, which is why when people tell me that Jesus asked, uh, if you get slapped, turn the other cheek, I find that very hard to believe. Anybody who's in the Middle East will tell you it's not a turn the other cheek kind of society. Nasty, but effective, very secular. They're a conservative society, but uh, there is a lot of open talk of Islam. But, you know, again, the problem is, you know, I, I have to give you so much context to this because the belief is that if it's a Muslim country, it's a closed country, it's a... Uh, Syria is not like that. They're very modern people, right? Uh, women would walk around in skirts and things like that, right? Uh, women wouldn't cover their hair. Uh, uh, it was a dictatorship, of course. You couldn't say things about uh, uh, the ruler and so on and so forth. But uh, my impression of it was always glorious. You could have fantastic historical conversations. You could have, uh, you were literally never more than about an hour or two uh, drive away from some fantastic piece of history. A lot of it has been destroyed now. Not completely destroyed, surprisingly. Okay. Uh, you know, history has a way of surviving. Okay. So even when the Taliban, first Aurangzeb destroyed the Bamiyan Buddha's faces, then the Taliban destroyed what was left of the Bamiyan Buddha's, but you still have the two, uh, you know, the niches that were carved into the thing. So you still have a sort of, uh, there was limits to what they could destroy. Okay. What went down? What went down was really climate change. People don't realize this. Um, So, you know, we spoke about Aleppo and Damascus. Damascus is in the south. It's always been the southern power center. And Aleppo, or Halab as it's called, was the northern power center. Always in direct competition with each other. Vicious competition with each other. Historically. Because the minority and majority... No, this has generally been that when you have two big cities that are both economically very powerful... They create the governor. If one conquers the other, the governor of the other always gets too big for his boots and rebels against this gotcha. one. Right? Okay. Because they're both kind of city superpowers in their own right. Mm. Um, what happened was you had a prolonged period of drought uh, in the north and in the Sunni north. And there was a massive population movement that happened because of the drought from the north to the south, which completely upset the Uh, uh, demographic balance and things like that. Uh, Resource competition, uh, demographic balance disturbed, uh, you know, a lot more. And when you're not doing very well, uh, these identity begins to matter. Mm. Before that, you know, there was a lot of intermarriage between Sunni and Alawite, uh, things like that. They really didn't care about these things. It started mattering afterwards. 
And so when things go from bad to worse, uh, and when the Arab Spring starts off in Tunisia, spreads to Egypt, and they overthrow the Egypt government, the Egyptian government at that point, uh, Hosni Mubarak, uh, here they think they can pull this off. False hope, or maybe real hope. They, they didn't think it was false hope. They thought it was real hope. Now with the benefit of hindsight, we can say it was false hope. Uh, led to a nasty crackdown by Syrian security forces, which was expected, of course. Uh, and then a lot of foreign interference to convert it into a full-blown civil war. And at that time, the Sunni countries, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, were all invested in turning it back into a Sunni state because uh, the Alawites are a Shia sect. They don't... There's lots of uh, different opinions on this, but... They were the primary launching base for Hezbollah, which is the Shia Lebanese organization mostly fighting Israel, technically, but mostly trying to carve out a Shia supremacy within Lebanon, supported by Iran. And nobody, well, like we discussed, the Saudis and the Emiratis and all the Sunni states don't like Iran because uh, Shia. Uh, and... Uh, they wanted to get rid of Assad because he was too dependent on um, Iran, too close to Iran. Uh, if you can bring a Sunni power out there, let's do it. Okay. What was America's narrative about interfering? Again, democracy, liberty, all those. Like, you know, I'm, I'm at the stage right now where if an American says freedom and democracy, I'm kind of getting ready to punch them in the face. I never want to hear an American say freedom. I love America. I mean, but the moment they say freedom and democracy, it's, it's just really irritating because you know this guy is lobotomized. He doesn't, he's never had an original thought. He's just been brainwashed on whatever shit he's been taught by the state. And he's just regurgitating talking points. Okay. What went down after? So I'm assuming that uh, there was a long standing battle between the rebels and the security forces. So after that, it was basically a nasty civil war, right? The mm. Sunnis uh, uh, gathered up against the sort of Christian Alawite uh, ruling class. Uh, and that got interspersed. You remember we spoke about how, how Paul Bremer screwed up things in Iraq and turned all the Ba'athists to a very secular, even by Indian standards, into terrorists effectively. They started migrating into uh, uh, Syria, training up these guys to create the state that they lost. Because Iraq was a Shia majority, but with a Sunni ruling class. Saddam mm. Hussein was a Sunni. And so they wanted to recreate that sort of Sunni state, except here it'd be more legitimate because Sunnis are in a majority. Mm. And you had people who were Ba'athists, who were meant to be secular, turning into ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And these people were used to be, uh, you know, uh, rolled out at five-star hotels in Paris and uh, uh, London saying, oh, this is secular. I mean, they're about, they, there wasn't anything remotely secular about these people. They were real religious obscurantists, nasty characters. What is this Paris thing, you said? Paris, everybody goes to Paris, you know, because Paris is a nice, expensive city. It's Instagrammable. So all these rebel conferences uh, usually happen in Paris or London. Because, you know, this rebellion business, it's a business, okay? Uh, they, they're not these um, uh, lofty, idealed individuals. They're there for the money. Mm. 
And what they're looking for is basically business class junket, some fame, staying in uh, the famed hotels of Paris and London, drinking champagne, mm. schmoozing. Uh, usually the, those intelligence agencies ply them with prostitutes of any uh, denomination that you want. And that's what happens out there. So every time the West says that this is a great dissident leader or rebel leader, I'm like, yeah, give me a break. Nobody even knows who this guy is. Mm. Okay. What went down in the next five so, years? So what went down was everybody interfering out there. So that after the security forces cracked down, you know, there's a point of no return. Like we'll keep abusing each other. But then finally, when I throw the punch, that's when our friendship ends. And then it's just all downhill from there. And this was everybody else coming in, supplying the other party with arms, uh, destroying the balance of power. Uh, had nobody interfered, maybe Syrian forces would have gained control of the situation in about a few months to a year. But because everybody started supplying these so-called rebels with arms and things like that, direct military intervention. Turkey used to keep coming across the border, sending its tanks and fighter planes to shoot down Syrian aircraft. To shoot down the Syrian military? Military. Okay, so yeah. they were also supporting the rebels. They were, they were totally. I mean, uh, this is, Erdogan is the biggest uh, father of Al-Qaeda. Uh, Eastern Turkey is like uh, everybody who fled from Afghanistan or uh, Iraq landed up in Eastern Turkey, Anatolia, and uh, turned it into Al-Qaedistan. Uh, it's, it's the nastiest characters you can get, you will find out there. Uh, and, and all this is in the last 15 years. Yeah. Since 2011, wow. actually. So in the last eight, nine years. And suddenly people who are Al-Qaeda, nasty terrorists who did 9-11 became moderate Muslims who seek peace. Uh, and um, Syria couldn't retaliate against Turkey because Turkey is a NATO member. If you hit a NATO member, that is a collective declaration of war on all of NATO. So they were just taking the bullets from Turkey? They had to. They had no other option. And uh, that is why it has continued for so long till the Russians came in. And so the Russians decided enough was enough. And this shows you how badly Putin miscalculates. Putin thought that the West shedding crocodile tears for Syrian refugees, because remember that became a huge issue. There were about two, three million Syrian refugees who went into Europe. Uh, he thought that they genuinely wanted a stable Syria so that all these refugees could go back home. They didn't realize it was a game that was being, it was a geopolitical game. He's quite naive in this way. Uh, so he actually decides to intervene in Syria and stabilize the situation in favor of Assad. And Europe and the West just goes apeshit at him. He genuinely thought the Europeans would be grateful. All my friends in the Kremlin thought, they were surprised at the European reaction. They're like, look, we're trying to help you guys so that more refugees don't come. And that's not the way Europe saw it. Mm. Right. And, um, but once Russia goes in, see, Turkey will take on, Turkey and Israel will bomb Syrian planes and Syrian soldiers. They won't dare bomb Russian uh, planes and Russian soldiers. Turkish planes did shoot down two Russian aircraft, I think uh, five, six years back just immediately after the Russian intervention. And that became really nasty because those, uh, those, both those pilots parachuted out. They were shot, captured, tortured uh, by ISIS or some Al-Qaeda-related uh, 
moderate secular rebel groups uh, on camera. Uh, and it took the Ukraine invasion to set relations between Turkey and Russia, well, even before they change alliances very quickly, uh, to set that right. But uh, Russia's intervention is what brought stability to Syria. Why do we see so many videos of human beings being burnt and their heads being cut off? Is it propaganda? Yeah. A lot of it is propaganda. A lot of it is propaganda. And it's it's not new. It's historical propaganda. It's just uh, the same old methods done with new visual mediums like cameras and WhatsApp and uh, high production quality. Earlier it used to be newspapers and gossip. Uh, and even before that, when Genghis Khan and uh, uh, the Turks used to do it, it used to be as simple as chopping off your heads outside the city walls and putting it on the spike. Mm. Or uh, public torture. I don't know if people know this, but when you go to Humayun's tomb, have you been to Humayun's tomb in Delhi? Um, if any of you live in Delhi or are going to Delhi, go to Humayun's tomb. Uh, and before you enter, there's a chabutra or platform on the left. Apparently, that's an execution platform. Everybody used to come to watch an execution like a picnic. And the Mughal method of execution was your head would be placed on a platform and an elephant would climb on it and crush your head. And see, this was meant to deter crime. But it used to be a picnic. You used to pack biryani and kebabs and go watch the execution of the day. And we shouldn't be surprised about this because the last public execution in London was 10 years after the London Metro, the London Underground, came online. So for a full 10 years, you could take the world's first tube or metro or underground to go watch a public execution in London. It's a way of people in power to show their power. Yes. And to have a control over the masses. Yes. So, okay, what's the Syrian version of it when you see really ghastly videos of men being burnt alive and screaming and becoming kebabs in front of you? Uh, basically, the group in question is trying to say... If you want to fight us, uh, if you get captured, this is what is going to happen to you. Okay. Don't cross me. Okay. You'll regret it. And this is ISIS. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, all of them do this. ISIS does this at a much higher level. Uh, you know, Al-Qaeda has been much more resilient than ISIS because ISIS did it to the point where, like, you know, we discussed in the last podcast, Khomeini who alienated everybody. In a different way. He was nowhere near as extreme as ISIS is. Uh, though he wasn't nice. Uh, ISIS took it to the next level and pissed off literally everybody. Uh, you know, for every damn thing. What's the 2023 reality of Syria right now? Keeping all factors included. When do you go there, dude? Last time was uh, 2006. Yeah. Okay, I've so it's been, been a while. I've been trying to go back since then. The problem is I've accumulated so many Israeli stamps on my passport. Uh, every time I've tried applying for a visa, they just keep saying, no, 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 no. You are a Zionist uh, spy. Mm. Mm. Okay. And they go through my Twitter timeline and see a lot of support for Israel. So they're like, <laughs> hey, you're definitely a Zionist spy. You're, <laughs> you're probably a closet Jew. Okay. Do you know what the ground reality is today? <sighs> I, I still have a lot of friends. Uh, so it's not direct, it's what I hear from them. Uh, a lot of them, not a lot, but some of them have returned back to Syria. Uh, it's largely peaceful except in the north where there's some kind of about 
five kilometer zone that is still under Turkish occupation, where which by Turkish occupation I technically mean Al Qaeda ISIS uh, lawless area where you know like the wild wild west where uh, Al Qaeda and op- ISIS operate with impunity, but largely it is back to peace fully. You will never have it fully because you know once a society has been brutalized that way. Uh, you know, societal norms. See, there's a something fundamentally like you and I will not go kill somebody uh, because of the way we've grown up. But when society has completely broken down and you've been behaving like animals for the last five, six years, you had that freedom to go kill somebody and take away his soup or bread or whatever. It'll almost come to you like a reflex reaction even when peace comes back in. Which means that in daily conversation and daily moments, there's still that little edge in still personality. Edge. There's still that edge. You spoke about Afghanistan in the last episode and you spoke about the same edge that it was there in some of yeah. those people. You've also said that your life has been in danger during your travels. I think. I mean, okay. I, I mean I'm here. So clearly no. it wasn't, but I was shitting my pants when those things happened. In Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Where else have you had dangerous experiences? Uh, nowhere really. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I know probably the biggest danger I was in was sometime in 85 or 86 when I went to Kamchatka, which is, you know, the Kamchatka Peninsula is the part of Russia that's closest to Alaska. Uh, on these rickety old Russian helicopters looking at volcanoes from helicopters. Wow. Uh, stunning. but. Uh, Given the safety record of Russian helicopters, I don't think I've ever been, even with the Taliban, I was never in as much danger. But I recognize that was a danger now. But in those days, I was like, oh my God, I'm going on a helicopter. Oh my God, I'm going to see. I'd never seen volcanoes at that point, right? So, and looking at a perfect caldera with magma inside it is stunning, man. What do you not understand from seeing a, an active volcano on Nadju? You do understand after seeing an active volcano in person. Uh, scale. Scale heat. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of radiated heat. Mm. Uh, it isn't like the cartoons because, you know, I think there's uh, light and image processing done in Nat Geo videos, which you probably don't see out there. Uh, I think the closest I've been to a cartoon depiction, a Disney depiction of a volcano was in Turkmenistan. In the uh, desert, there's this place called Darwaza which is exactly what it sounds like in Hindi, a door. It's called the door to hell. Mm. And what it was, was a Soviet a mining experiment gone wrong. They hit a piece of natural gas and it blew up inside. It created an artificial volcano. Of course, it's not a real volcano. It's a man-made uh, depression, which is constantly on fire. It's been on fire for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, and it actually generates its own thermal currents so you can't fly drones over it and things uh-huh. like that. But since then, I've walked up pretty close to a volcano, Mount Etna in Sicily. Uh, that wasn't as exciting as I thought it was. Looking at it from a helicopter where you're high enough to actually go over the absolute center, totally different experience. You can visualize yourself falling even? Yeah, constantly. <laughs> I have huge vertigo issues. I constantly, yeah. It was like, what will happen to my body when it hits lava? Yeah. Touches lower. Yeah. Like this dissolve? Yeah. 
and it's it's the moment that thought enters my head i immediately think of something else okay okay let's think of the cold now yeah uh you said you've experienced minus 30 minus 60 degrees i think the coldest i've been is about minus uh minus 26 or so okay minus 26 minus 30 something some in something. russia in russia and you went out seeking that yeah i went out seeking that i'm going to go out seeking minus 60 sometime next year where or end of this year a place called oymyakon it's the coldest place on earth um and um but the natural coldest place that i've been to was also in russia well south of uh Oymya Konso warmer closer to the equator i mean relatively closer to the equator um in uh, in yakutsk uh, which is um this eastern far eastern russian city which gets very very cold mm-hmm. uh but it was minus 26 and my memory was that you had to wear goggles because the water in your eye would freeze <laughs> uh you had to wrap up everything and every time you'd enter a building or get out of a building out there they were going on the trans siberian railway but um uh every time you went into a building or got out of a building you have kids doesn't matter huh shot of vodka because it warms up your body right mm pleasurable yeah <laughs> unless your eyes freeze over your eyes freeze and you know you have to keep a um uh muffler around your mouth because your lips will then stick you you can't lick your lips because if you lick your lips they will literally stick and then you will it will tear off parts of your lips why do you want to go there again because it's been like 30 odd years i mean it's i think the last time i experienced that kind of cold was when i went to the great wall some Nine, ten years back, we went to a different part of the Great Wall, and it was like minus thirteen, fourteen. I'm like, yeah, it's me, maza nahi aaya. This wasn't fun because you know it was like it was just normal cold. Because when mm-hmm. you're wrapped up, when you've got your layers on, it's unless it's like minus thirty, forty, you're not really enjoying it. Not BDSM enough. Yeah, it's not BDSM oh. enough. It's not like um, you know, it's like. having a social drink it's not like ah. going out on a bender to get drunk mm. okay i mean you're not really drunk unless you don't remember what happened the next day <laughs> and you vomited over your friend's house their bed sheets their carpets and everything right so many more questions so many more questions but we're slightly out of time today mm-hmm. over the last uh, two episodes that we've recorded which is why for the final segment I want to highlight China i don't know too many indians other than some entrepreneurs who've traveled through china you said you've lived there Yeah, on and off uh for close to about 9-10 months. There's a very general China hatred on the Indian internet for the last 5 years. Hmm. Um I met a Chinese person in Australia, someone who had grown up in China. <coughs> was very polite, very friendly, got excited knowing that I'm Indian. Hmm. And she's like my father asked me to ask you what Indians think of China. And then I wanted to tell her the truth, <laughs> but it was too polite an environment for me to tell her the truth. Yeah, this is like me in Iran talking about India, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, worse because Iranians don't care about India. Uh, Indians have a negative opinion of China. Yeah. Um, so you know, China is one of those countries where I think I have failed because in every country I have succeeded in making friends. Uh, 
with people with whom I could have an honest conversation. I think China is one of those countries where despite the amount of time I've spent, I've failed quite spectacularly in cultivating. Number one. Number two, I'd never enjoyed my time in China. Because there's something very artificial about it. There's an artificial homogenization happening out there. You know, for me, a country is, the joy of a country is the diversity. You know, the diversity of languages, the diversity of architecture, cuisine, whatever, whatever. In China, there's this forcible homogenization to an imagined reality of what China was. Uh, I've come across extremely racist Chinese who will just shoo you out of their shop if you're an Indian. Uh, I have come across some of the nicest people uh, who during the height of Doklam, I was uh, literally about uh, 70 to 100 kilometers away from where the standoff in Doklam was happening at the really? same time on the Chinese side of the border. Yeah, Tibet? Uh, Tibet. Um, at, um, that was immediately after the North Korea uh, visit. I flew to Tibet because I got a tourist visa and I was like, heck, I'm on a tourist visa when Doklam is going on. What the hell am I doing do tourism? I need to go try going to Doklam and from the <laughs> Chinese side and seeing what's happening. Uh, so I did. Uh, they stopped me. Uh, and this is where I had budgeted entirely for an Indian attire, which didn't suit me. Uh, they saw, look, buddy, you're wearing kurta pajama. Now get the hell out. Thus far and no further. But uh, it was, uh, and on the way back, because I flew into uh, Lhasa and I flew I took the train out because I wanted to see how the train ride is. But, you know, the train goes all the way up north into Xinjiang province and then it goes through the Muslim provinces of Ningxia and Gansu and finally towards uh, Beijing. And in the train, there was nothing but goodwill, right? Because you keep saying into, into in Indian. They're like, oh, and, you know, they're trying to make conversation with you. They want to know there was... None of that Doklam hostility did I feel on the train. None of the Doklam hostility did I feel in Beijing. And I used my last two days there to, you know, talk to people uh, to see what Beijing was thinking about the situation. Sheer dumb luck. Uh, you know, that no Indian was given a visa to go there at that time, except maybe Anand Krishnan from the Hindu was staying there at that time. But I just happened to be there, managed to call up friends and things. But, and this is where I have a very negative opinion of Xi Jinping, because, you know, till the president of China was Hu Jintao, and before that Jiang Zemin, in public, they would have to repeat the party line, but in private, you could have a serious conversation with them, right? Uh, which wasn't the party line. It wasn't talking points. Today, they are so scared to have that conversation with you because they don't know who's listening. He's cracking down on all dissent. No criticism allowed. And, you know, if you don't allow criticism, you can't see where you're going wrong. Right. So, um, I have a very, I think China is the only country that I've visited that I have, um, that the balance of experiences is negative. Um, okay. Yeah. Do you think they're on brink of a civil war? That's the geopolitical chatter you hear a lot on the internet. No, I don't think they're anywhere near the brink of a civil war. I do believe that they're on brink of some kind of uh, social upheaval over the next 20 years or so. Uh, but I don't think it's civil war. I mean, uh, it may end up being a civil war. But I have seen a very uh, depoliticized society a society that's forgotten the bad days, they're used to the good life. 
and they're very happy to keep silent for the good life. Mm. Soft times lead to soft men. Exactly. Okay. Very and shocking corruption. Oh, really? Uh, shocking. Uh, you know, you will not even a policeman who's trying to extract hafta from you for speeding or crossing the red light in Delhi is nothing compared to the levels of corruption I've seen with Chinese government officials. Because they are the bullies. Because they're the bullies. And they control everything. Yeah. Okay. So what's the response of the public according to you? Some people have this uh, theory that it'll happen as soon as next year. And no. I keep hearing this a lot. Look, um, for me, it really, the, China's problems begin when 3D printing and additive manufacturing take off in the West. Because they're earning money through their manufacturing businesses. Exactly. Right and you okay. know, the Chinese government is going out of its way to prevent transitioning to an information society. They want manufacturing to be the backbone of it. Right. Right. Uh, so what you're seeing is they're actually like Jack Ma, uh, Alibaba's services. Why did they crack down on him? Because they really want manufacturing to be the core and not services to be the core. Right. Now, what ends up happening out here is that uh, what is the easiest thing to start 3D printing and manufa uh, additive manufacturing? It's first the toothbrush. Right, which is just plastic with bristles on it. Plastic uh, stick with plastic bristles on it. Then it becomes a tube light, which has a metal piece, a glass piece, and a tungsten piece in the center. Uh, and then the higher up the value chain you go, the longer it takes to start 3D printing it. Right? And China, a lot of its business is the low-end manufacturing, which is also getting offshored. So you're kind of seeing this thing, a competition between... China offshoring its lower end, which makes it more secure against as and when 3D printing of that low end catches up. Mm. And the moment 3D printing becomes sophisticated enough to catch up to the lower end of China's high end market, that's when the trouble is going to begin. It's 2000, early 30s? Yeah. Mid 30s. Mid 30s. Yeah. Okay. All these advances in technology we're seeing, be it 3D printing, be it AI, be it quantum computing and everything mm. we've spoken mm. about today, automation in general, mm. all of it's going to completely fuck up the geopolitical games all over the world or will it be see a continuation of whatever's happening already? You know, Mark Twain used to say history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's like that. It's It's going to be variations on a theme. It'll be the it won't be the same thing. It'll be similar things. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's how I see it. And uh, I'm like, since we've brought up BDSM, I'm, <laughs> I'm an extreme sadist because <laughs> I only make money when the shit hits the fan. Okay. Any final geopolitical predictions at the end of these two episodes? Oh. No? Wouldn't no. want to go there? Um, no, not really. I, 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 Okay, the one big prediction I'll make is we will not see Chinese paramountcy. Uh, China will be like a premature ejaculation. It's going to uh, climax, 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 and then it'll be, uh, it'll sort of implode. I don't know about implode, but um, you will see a multipolar world before you will see Chinese paramountcy. We are not going to see a period of Chinese paramountcy. That's the prediction. Yeah. Okay. Anything else we've missed out from your travel experiences that you'd like to share? No, I mean, we could have talked about food and Europe and my weirdest food experiences, <laughs> but um, 
we'll keep that for another day all right aim how was it i loved it radvi thank you did you have fun yeah good you're, a, you're an encyclopedia dude and you're an encyclopedia who has perspective based on travel and i think mm. you're an easy guy to talk to so it's very rare that i find this as a podcast honestly so it's great so you're the first person who didn't tell me i'm a dear to my face so thank you for that <laughs> who who tells you hey, everybody really have you seen my timeline on twitter they like uh, to yeah hai tu ganja hai tu takla homo hai uh, tu gandu hai this that and that cool no i think that's just twitter's effect on everyone yeah uh, i had palki sharma on the show and uh. she said that you know we all get so affected by twitter without understanding that's a very tiny segment of humanity that's on twitter in the first place and even tinier segment of india so uh, you really can't take it that seriously yeah yeah i mean i don't take it seriously i actually enjoy uh being called <laughs> and things like that <laughs> so it's like fine that's the bdsm again yeah stepping in okay uh probably one final question man what are you liking about the world of podcasts do you think because you've also been on arnab's debates etc you've hmm. been a part of traditional news media in some ways i know too many people my age don't watch the news anymore i i don't have a tv uh i go to youtube and watch podcasts mm. because i think it's long form news it's uh it's like a journal article a serious scholarly journal article or it can be a quack journal article i mean i think covid taught us that so much of academia is just quackery yep uh i any day prefer podcasts to the news because it's not time limited the discussion is freewheeling i think it's much more organic mm and um i still get a lot of my knowledge from reading journal articles like i make it a point to read five journal articles every day while i'm sitting on the throne mm. um, the throne is coffee you know <laughs> um but um for me podcasts are the future i think a lot of people have come to that when I mean, you look at the your popularity joe rogan's popularity it's it's not tv media it's podcasts right where people get a lot more value addition from a podcast than they do from people Arguing. giving two and a half minute clips mm. okay abhijit ayer mitra thank you thank you sir return very soon on the show hopefully uh, many more questions man many more questions yeah. that's all i'll say so come back soon yeah man all happy right. to all right thank you yeah thank you well that was our two bar special with aim abhijit ayer mitra please check out the first episode if you haven't checked it out already if you enjoyed this one the first one is more centered around the gulf region it's a lot more about afghanistan uh it's kind of an intro to his viewpoint on geopolitics and of course we have a ton of geopolitics episodes that we've already covered on trs so make sure you go check those out as well just search beer biceps space geopolitics and you will be overwhelmed by how much content we've put up honestly trs will be back soon aim will return very soon on trs please tell us what else you'd like for me to discuss with him the next time he's around then we run the team we'll see you soon <laughs>